Hi, I'm Anya Katz, and you're listening to A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World. I started this podcast because I was tired of being stereotyped as lazy, triggered, and entitled. I wanted to give voice to a different kind of millennial and invite us to write a new story. One of a generation willing to challenge the status quo, embrace nuance and paradox, and reject PC culture. This podcast isn't about finding answers. It's about asking the right questions. How can we reinvent ourselves and the narratives we've been expected to inherit? How can we take ownership over the ways we participate in our own suffering? How can we move beyond victimization and into empowerment? How can we fix ourselves to fix the world? It's time for new dreams, new stories, and new futures. First, the sun moved into the tropical sign of Cancer, marking the summer solstice in the northern hemisphere and the winter solstice in the southern hemisphere. The solstice occurs when the Earth's 23.45 degree tilted rotational axis dips the northern hemisphere toward the sun, bathing it in more sunlight than any other day of the year. At the same time, for those below the equator, June 21st marks the shortest day of the year the winter solstice. The specific nature of the Earth's axis has long been considered by scientists to be one of the possible explanations as to why our planet is capable of sustaining life. Other planets have a tilted axis too. Some are hardly noticeable, like Mercury's, while others are more drastic, like Uranus's, which causes the planet to lean on its side at almost 90 degrees. Some planets, like Mars, have an axis similar to Earth's, but lack the gravitational pull of a moon like ours to ensure the tilt remains steady and constant over time. Without the tilt, we wouldn't have the seasons, and without the moon, the seasons wouldn't be consistent. The consistency of the cycle is what sustains life as we know it. Of course, just because the cycle is consistent doesn't mean each of us experiences it in the same way. After all, right now in the Northern Hemisphere, it's the middle of summer, while in the Southern Hemisphere, it's the middle of winter. To me, this begs the question of why we insist on calling June 21st the summer solstice. Why is the cycle of the Northern Hemisphere prioritized? And while we're at it, we might as well also ask why the Northern Hemisphere is considered to be North, when there is no such thing as up or down in space. Is there a greater significance to these value-laden characteristics than we realize? I was recently speaking to my friend Nadia about some of my experiences in Africa and how it feels as if the quote old and the quote new are very close together here. Native indigenous ways of living are rubbing right up against modern civilization and the shift from one to the other is palpable in a way I've never experienced before. Driving down the streets of Dar es Salaam in Tanzania, I felt an unrelenting urge to jump out of the taxi, wave my hands at everyone walking down the street, and yell, stop, you're going the wrong direction. I promise you don't want what's at the end of this path. 
Nadia reflected on a similar experience she had living alongside the indigenous Bribri people in Costa Rica. She was living in Costa Rica to learn about permaculture and to opt out of the civilized world in whatever way she could. She lived in a tent without electricity, learned to identify the local plants, ate off the land, and stopped wearing shoes. At the same time, she was witnessing the Bribri people going in the opposite direction. They were moving out of their traditional homes, learning Spanish, and wearing modern clothes. She too had the inclination to tell them to stop, confident that they were going the wrong way. It's like we were crossing, Nadia explained. She was opting out of civilization as they were opting in, and their paths just happened to be crossing at the specific point in time and space, like some sort of historical equinox. Cycles exist far beyond those of the moon, planets, and seasons. They exist within storytelling, ecology, biology, and psychology, and each cycle occurs along its own unique timeline. Whether it's Joseph Campbell's hero's journey, the 28-day menstrual cycle, the 27.5 million year cycle of geological changes on Earth, or the multi-layered biochemical cycles of fermentation, compost, oxygen, and water, we all exist within many different interwoven and interconnected cycles. I've spent a lot of time thinking, writing, and talking about how I don't think modern civilization has been beneficial and I still firmly believe this to be true. Agriculture, resource accumulation, private property, many forms of technology, capitalism, and hierarchical power structures have destroyed the ecological balance of our planet and provoked overpopulation, widespread disease, loneliness, unhappiness, multiple forms of inequality, etc. While there are undeniably some modern conveniences I won't deny that I enjoy, hot baths, comfortable beds, books, education, and access to healthcare, just to name a few. I've often claimed that I would trade all of it to go back to the basics of hunting, gathering, living off the land, and belonging to a small egalitarian tribe. However, this trip to Africa made me realize that I've been a bit pompous and naive about the importance and relevance of my own cyclical timeline and the assumptions that I've made as a result. For example, upon learning about the eviction of the Maasai from the Ngorongoro conservation area, my knee-jerk outrage quickly led to confusion and some uncomfortable consideration when I met a Maasai man, who you'll hear on the podcast soon, speak about his first-hand experience of the negative aspects of his own culture, especially as it relates to overpopulation and overgrazing. My confusion continued to grow as I researched the prevalence of female circumcision and cattle raiding among the Maasai, the lack of sustainability of ritualistic predator killing within a population that has almost tripled in the last 30 years, and the practice of cattle accumulation as a means to demonstrate wealth and status, even within a tribe generally considered to be nomadic pastoralists, presumably uninterested in the value structures of modern civilization. If a Maasai girl came to me and said she'd rather get an education than be forced into female circumcision and an arranged marriage at age 12, would I really advise her to forego the modern education she desires in exchange for her indigenous culture's traditional values? 
Of course, none of this is to say that the values of Western education should be impartially applauded, nor am I claiming that, quote, past and future can be compared in such simple terms, but ultimately, who am I to claim to know which is better? Eventually, I started to ask myself why I assumed I had the right to tell anyone that they were going the wrong direction. Was it fair for me to romanticize the, quote, past, while simultaneously judging others for romanticizing the future? What even is the past or the future? How can I accurately claim to know which path is moving forward and which is going backward? What is old and what is new? Can I accurately assess where any story begins and ends? If the specific nature of the Earth's axis is considered by scientists to be an explanation as to why our planet is capable of sustaining life, then this explanation isn't just related to the importance of cycles, but more specifically to the importance of their interwoven and paradoxical nature. One flower dies as another one grows. One relationship ends as another begins. One person enters a dark night while another reemerges into the light. The June 21st solstice represents both summer and winter, light and dark, day and night. By the time the December 21st solstice rolls around, the same will be true, although the hemispheres will be flipped in their proximity to the sun. While the Northern Hemisphere hibernates for winter, the Southern Hemisphere will be basking in the heat of the sun's rays. Perhaps the solstice is trying to tell us a tale about the importance of concurrent timelines and the inevitability of interwoven, interconnected cycles that cross and weave through one another in time and space. While part of the beauty of this process is our ability to learn from one another, it's important to remember that our story will only ever be ours and someone else's story will only ever be theirs. So, in honor of the solstice, I wish you a fun and fulfilling ride on what Joni Mitchell aptly calls the carousel of time. If you see me when you come around on the other side, make sure to wave and say hello. that note, hello to all of you. That was a piece that I wrote for Substack the other day that I figured was very relevant to today's conversation with Sophie Strand. So in exchange for a regular old intro of me rambling, today I decided to read you something maybe a little less rambling. Um, I am so excited to bring you this conversation. I have been following Sophie for a little while. I am a subscriber to her Substack page, and as you will hear more about in our conversation, because I said it like six times probably, I was really relieved to find the work that she was doing, the ways that she weaves together storytelling and ecology and spirituality. And it certainly feels very resonant to me, but also just very important for where we're going in this crazy, crazy world. I am in Africa still. I will be here for another few days before going to Georgia. 
This has been a really, really fascinating and enriching and challenging experience to be in Africa, in Tanzania for the first time. I wanted to come here because I wanted to experience a culture and a country that I had never experienced before. Um, and it certainly delivered <laughs> in ways that I couldn't have really ever predicted or expected. And I'm just trying to sort of like sit with my experiences and my thoughts um, a little bit before just spewing a bunch of unorganized things into the universe. Uh, it's also partially why I wanted to like read you the piece that I wrote because I felt like it was organized and succinct in a way that my thoughts and emotions are still not at the moment. Um, yeah, I came here basically because I thought it would be really interesting to do, as I said, to learn about something and experience something I had never done before and also go on a safari, which then totally challenged my feelings of being like a white privileged person on uh, lands that were kicking out indigenous populations in exchange for, quote, um, conservation of, quote, nature. Uh, and then I feel like I was challenged once again by talking to people who actually live here and getting their perspectives as opposed to the kind of like white westernized perspectives that we project onto the rest of the world. So the next episode that you'll hear is actually with our safari guide who is a uh, raised Maasai and he's technically half Maasai, but uh, he was raised in that culture and he had a lot of interesting things to share. So I will be talking a lot more about that, I'm sure, um, especially in the next episode about my experiences once they settle a bit more. But for now, in honor of this conversation that you're about to hear, and just because it's all I can really succinctly talk about at the moment in regard to my experience, I've just been thinking a lot about stories and my story versus someone else's story and the ways in which we tend to project our own experience, our own value structures onto others. And I, we do this because I think oftentimes we think it's for the best. Like we think we're protecting people or helping people. Um, but how might we, for example, try to change a friend or someone we're in a relationship with? And then if we kind of scale that back a bit um, or scale it up, I guess, but sort of look at that objectively, how can we apply that same urge to what we do cross-culturally? Uh, and this can be through colonialism and westernization, thinking that like everyone needs to have a westernized experience or take part in a western um, education. But it can also happen in the way that we project the fact that we are unhappy with those things onto these cultures, right? So for me to say and claim, you know, civilization is bad and you should not participate in civilization, well, that's pretty... I don't know, kind of like egoic and ridiculous of me to say because I already experienced these things and I formed my own opinions about them and why shouldn't other people have their own experiences and form their own opinions of these things for themselves? Uh, so that's something I've been thinking about and also really thinking about where stories begin and where they end and if that's even something we can accurately understand or know because, of course, our species is a tiny little blip on the radar compared to the history of this planet. Um, I think I've probably talked about this before, but I think one of the most sort of like visually impactful experiences that I've ever had is driving through Moab, Utah, or really anywhere, a lot of places in Utah, but places where you can see the layers of earth 
that are representative of periods of time on this planet. And these layers of earth, you know, these, these cliffs are, and the erosion, it's massive, right? So you're looking at something that's so far above you and of course extends so far below you. But the period of time that humans existed is literally the height of a piece of paper. And I think that was such an important thing for me to realize that we inflate our importance as a person, as a culture, as uh, a collective, as a species, far beyond what we really have a right to do given the history of time. If you would like to get access to more of my writing, uh, like what I read at the beginning of this show, you can do so on Substack. It is free to anybody who wants to sign up. If you would like to uh, to sign up for a paid subscription, you are of course very welcome and I would appreciate that. I didn't want to put content behind a paywall or put access to this community behind a paywall as I did previously with Patreon um, because I wanted everyone to be able to have access to the same things. I'm going to be bringing back the book club, um, a lot of the things that we did on Patreon, but I just wanted more people to have access to it. So it is free. However, if you have the means to donate, please see that your donation is not um, in exchange for writing or in exchange for the perks I offer on Substack uh, or on the podcast, but just for the project overall, right? So if you find this content valuable, the podcast episodes, the writing I put on Substack, the community spaces that I create, um, you can see that your donation and your subscription is going toward that. I always, always intend to keep this podcast ad-free and sponsorship-free. I want nothing to do with any of that, but of course I do still need to make money. This is the major uh, project that I have in my life. So if you have the means to participate financially, I appreciate it. Of course, I appreciate your participation in whatever way that works for you, whether that's a paid subscription, a free subscription, just spending your time here with me, sharing a podcast with friends, sharing it on social media, leaving me a review on iTunes. I always forget to ask for that too. Um, those are really helpful. They're super easy to do. If you listen to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, you can go leave some stars in a review. It takes like two seconds. You can just say, this podcast is awesome or this podcast is not awesome or whatever you're thinking at any time. Um, normally when I reach out to guests, they will frequently go to Apple Podcasts to see how many people have reviewed it or have left stars. Um, it's not always like in perfect correlation with the amount of people that listen to the podcast or how much people like it, uh, but there are very few ways to assess that for someone uh, who's a guest. So if you leave a, a review on iTunes, that helps a lot. It also helps the podcast show up more in search results when people search for it because people misspell millennial a lot. It's a weird word. And uh, unless the podcast is well-reviewed and well-starred, uh, rated, etc., cetera, um, it's more difficult to find. So I appreciate you. I appreciate you being here. And I'm going to play you in today with a song called Meet the Moonlight by Jack Johnson, uh, which is a song I've been listening to on repeat for a while. Kind of forgot about Jack Johnson. Definitely used to listen to him as like a 14, 15-year-old um, and sort of fell out of touch with his music, but I heard the song and I've really enjoyed it and I've been dancing to it a lot and think it's a really sweet, simple, important message about how much access we have to the natural world um, and to the ecologies that we are a part of. Um, I think when we 
are feeling lonely or alone and afraid, I think it's so important to recognize how much belonging is in the earth and the planet itself. I know I found a lot of comfort with that in periods of my own isolation and feeling like I didn't belong to any person or any group or any family of any kind, but really um, through way of ecology and nature and the beauty and like majesty and mystery of all of that did I find my way back to other humans <laughs> that could make me feel as if I belonged and was welcomed. So enjoy the song, enjoy this conversation. And as always, I will catch you on the other side. Good to 
to miss Too many chances to follow Sophie Strand, and I'm very excited to have you on the podcast. Um, as I was saying before we started, I was really kind of relieved to find your work because I'm super interested in how we tell stories with our lives, right? <laughs> Not just write stories or read stories, but actually engage in a story and in a narrative. Um, and the way that you do this, especially tying in ecology, I think is really beautiful and and much needed. So I'm really grateful to have you on the show. Well, thank you so much for having me. Um, yeah. I think that podcasters are doing kind of some of the most important work in bringing oral storytelling mm-hmm. back and complicating the idea of an individual narrative, that you're creating ecosystems of voices and stories rather mm-hmm. than like, um, you know, monologuing tree farms. <laughs> <laughs> totally. I love that analogy. Yeah, and I think also just sort of like reviving the importance of a conversation. You know, sometimes I wonder if it's not even the topic of the conversation that, you know, that we're discussing, but just the conversation itself to sort of like promote that as a way of interaction and that sort of back and forth and openness and curiosity, I also think is like much needed. Exactly. Yeah. And no one knows how to do it anymore. Um, everyone's just kind of steadfast in their own position and like they're behind the debate podium. (laughs) Um, yeah. yeah. What was your inspiration behind starting the podcast? Good question. Um, it was like 2018. So like after Trump got elected, which I think threw all of us for a bit of a loop. And simultaneous to that, I had just gotten divorced at age 28 and sort of was asking myself, like, who am I and what am I doing with my life? Um, And really restarted everything from the ground up as far as my career and my relationships and the way I engaged in relationships. And it was also when the Me Too movement was starting and a lot of, like, ideological identitarian movements. And I consider myself extremely liberal, and yet I felt alienated from... (laughs) 
a lot of like woke ideology that I didn't think was um, encouraging as much conversation that that's needed for these very complex topics. Um, so I spent a lot of time being sort of like angry that I wasn't hearing these conversations or I, were, I wasn't hearing nuanced opinions until I just decided, well, maybe I'm supposed to be having them myself. So I'll just start a podcast. Um, and yeah, it was honestly a, a big part of it too, was having been ashamed of being a millennial my whole life, um, because of the reputation that we've gotten. And like, I didn't feel like I was those stereotypes and so I wanted to tell a different story about my generation, but also like encourage my generation to think in maybe some more complex, nuanced ways. Well, I so. appreciate that nuance. Yeah. As yeah. a millennial who has also struggled against that <laughs> container. Um, yeah. Yeah. For sure. So I'd love to hear if you, if you remember or can sort of pinpoint a moment I know you've been involved in writing and have loved stories and fiction for a long time, but I'm curious if there was a moment for you, as I sort of mentioned at the beginning, like where you sort of recognized that you were also a story um, mm. and that you were telling a narrative and that we have that the capacity to do this. Yeah, Such a good question. Mm. Um, yeah, because I think that one of the hard parts about our culture is it kind of gives you a narrative and it pretends it's invisible and then it doesn't let you switch narratives or play with other ones. Um, right. I think the moment I realized I was in a story was when one story ended mm. and it ended abruptly and I had no idea how to navigate the new story and I could see that I was so I was raised by writers mm -hmm. with a love of writing, both fiction, nonfiction. And, you know, they read aloud to me. We had books around. You know, I was encouraged to create stories in many different ways growing up. And I was a survivor of um, childhood abuse. But I didn't talk about it, didn't process it, kept it a secret from my family, and also didn't acknowledge it as part of my story as right. being perhaps like the ground of a lot of things. Yeah. Um, and so I lived a story kind of naively of being a young, healthy kid growing up with creative parents who were a little poor, but like culturally rich mm. in, you know, a woodsy town with a lot of funky friends. And then when I was 16, I fell dramatically ill and I didn't just fall ill. I fell out of a story and the dis, the dissonance of not feel, of trying to keep living the story that didn't work anymore brought me into awareness that I had been living the story that actually was remarkably incompatible with me. Um, and it was incredibly, I think of horseshoe, not horseshoe crabs, hermit crabs mm -hmm. and how they don't actually produce their shells. They steal other um, snail shells. Yeah. And when they grow too big, they exit their shell and they look for a new one, but usually they arrive at a shell that's not quite the right size. So they wait there. And what happens is it's called a vacancy chain. So a bunch of different horse hermit crabs line up and then all mutually exchange shells so that they all have the right sized one. Yeah. And I, I, I think I had, I experienced this moment of being like that um, hermit crab, 
like waiting for the right shell, not knowing what size it was going to be, not knowing where it was. Um, and I think I actually COVID has been that for me too. It's been, um, you know, I had a long-term partnership and we were engaged and we were set to like, you know, we'd been living together for years, set to get married and everything fell apart like two weeks before COVID. So I'm definitely like back in that place where I feel the dissonance between like one story ending and the other perhaps going to happen, but I'm not going to be the author of it. I'm going to have to like step into it. Right. Yeah. Yeah, Which I guess begs the question, which is a question I wanted to ask you about like, are we in control of our stories? Um, and not just our personal stories, but also our collective stories, right? Like I know your writing uh, and the ways you explore things are often like trying to re-explore existing stories and existing myths. Um, so I'm curious, I feel like it's a debate I have a lot with people whether, you know, like uh, if we all change ourselves, can we actually make a difference? And like, do we have control over the future? And um or is there something greater that we're participating in that we may not have total control over? Hmm. Thank you. I think that I have a bunch of different ways in. One, I think we're living on scales that are not suited to a human lifetime. You know, a lot of conservation ecology is incredibly hubristic in that it's attempting to manage ecosystems with, like, a human lifetime span when the, like, trophic waves and species migrations are happening at, like, an incredibly slow rate. I mean, I oftentimes say to people that, you know, if you actually understand evolution, you realize that evolutionary adaptions happen so slowly that our bodies are like the photo negative of ecosystems that no longer even exist. Right. You know, our bodies are adapted for ecosystems that are extinct. That's how slow these stories happen and that we are interactive with. And I think perhaps the thing that I'm always trying to complicate in my own understanding is I think that there is free will. And I do believe in a kind of Rupert Sheldrakean like morphic resonance, which is that like the more something happens, the more likely it is to happen, the easier it is to happen. Mm. So that the more people start having complex conversations, start interrupting cultural narratives, the easier it will be for those narratives to be problematized and to change. So I, I do really believe that conversations like this matter in like a a kind of like molecular patterned way. Like they change the the molecular pattern. Um, But I also think that we're in a very complex, illegible collaboration with the world and with different, with with, with a polytemporal world, a multi-species world. And that, you know, every time we breathe in, we are molecularly, um, reconstituting ourselves with the microbiome around us, with the pheromones, with the funk, with the sensory communications of other beings. So we're in collaboration. I think there are stories that are happening that we don't know we're participating in. Like, I think for me, I had this... Have you, did you watch Game of Thrones? A little bit, not the whole thing. Okay, maybe it, no, no, I'm not going to go there. But... There's a moment in that series where a character has been very odd the whole time and you think it's just kind of a cute thing. And then you realize that this very particular oddity about him was suited for this one moment, that his whole being was was about keying him to being a participant in a story that he's not the main character in. 
And I think a lot about us as the thing I want to problematize is not that we can't participate in the story, but that we're the main character. And I had this moment where I'd had these woodchucks arriving to me in these increasingly strange ways in my life. And I like was like, what does this mean? What does woodchuck like lineage mean? Like, can I look up things about them scientifically and mythically? Like, why are they approaching me all the time? And then I was driving home in the middle of this wild storm on the highway from seeing a friend. And there was a woodchuck trapped in the like the divider and it was never going to be able to get across and like without thinking I like put the car in park ran through like uh, like speeding cars and went like this and the woodchuck jumped into my arms and I ran across and threw it into the woods and I was like okay and then I was like that was dumb and um some lady yelled at me like out of her car she was like you're crazy (laughs) and I realized I was like what if my whole life my whole life that I think is so important because I'm inside of it Mm -hmm. um, was actually about that moment. Like, what if that was the main event of my life, was me saving this woodchuck? Like, I think all these things I'm doing are important, but everything in my life was just preparing me for that moment. So, and that's a joke, but but, but I also think that sometimes we have to think, like, maybe I'm a side character who's supposed to do this one very specific thing. Um, Yeah, and I wonder if you... To me, that idea, and I think I've thought of this as well, and maybe we can talk a little bit about why you feel so inspired to sort of tell these stories through an ecological lens. Because I think there's something about, of course, being a part of something or not being the main character, which might at first for people seem threatening or like diminishing of their ego and importance. And to me, I find it quite comforting actually. <laughs> Me too. And I'm curious, yeah. Yeah, I'd love to hear how that lands for you. Um I think for me it's if you actually look at what happens to main characters, the whole the whole idea of, of a heroic individual is actually relatively modern. In oral cultures that existed for most of human history, you you see re, you know patterns of relationship and webs of kin and complex communities being documented rather than heroic individuals are the main character. And I think if you look at what happens to heroic individuals, they die, they struggle, <laughs> they go through trauma. Like, I don't think it's maybe the most fun to be a hero um, and yeah. to be an, a, the main character. And that what might be much more um, mischievous and comforting is to see that you are a participant in a, in a dance. Right. Yeah, it reminds me of... Um... Jason and the Argonauts. Yeah. Um, and I, I teach astrology. And so I always use that myth to teach about the sign of Aries, which of course is the first sign in the Zodiac and is associated with the hero, but is the beginning of the story, right? Like that, ha- that life hasn't been completed yet. That's just the birth. Yeah. Um, and this concept of like, what does it actually take to be a hero? And Jason actually got a lot of help along the way that, and still took that. all the that's credit. A, yeah. That's a great framing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so how did you, I mean, I'm sure this isn't an easy question to answer, but like why ecology, where did that kind of inspiration come from as it relates to storytelling? Was that was it a moment? Was it something that you just like woke up one day was like, oh my gosh, wow, I can sort of see the connections to all of these things? I wish I had a clearer answer. And I think the truth is actually kind of blurry, which is I was yeah. raised in the dirt by parents who were deeply animistic 
And it, what was strange to me was realizing that other people didn't think about <laughs> everything in terms of animals and plants and fungi. Uh, and that yeah. was the disjunction for me. It was like, oh, you like don't believe stones are alive? Okay. Like, all right. I talk to cats, but like, um, yeah. so I think for me, it was a reclaiming of a sensibility that I had as a child. Um, I also was very aware that, so I love books and stories and I was, and I loved big epics where you have an ecosystem, like a fully realized world with trees, with smells, with a sensory scaffolding. You can enter into it. Every character is complex and every character is rooted in place and responding to place. And that felt like reality, which is we aren't these like, you know, surface skimming, like deracinated beings that don't have a relationship to where we're, we're born and made. And I think as I grew up and, and loved books, I was worried and upset that a lot of books seemed to just be about three human beings that didn't seem super fully realized and there were no trees and there were no animals and there was no ecosystem and it didn't feel nourishing. I mean, my parents were very, I, th I think my parents were part of like the first really big wave of like, like when I was 10, my parents were like, global warming is happening. We won't have electricity forever. We're doomed. Like, so like that was part of my consciousness pretty early on before other people. So I think I've always felt like if we don't save and acknowledge the bumptious animacy of everything in our stories, then we're not going to save it in real life. So there has to be some kind of um, mirroring between our art and our, our lived experience. So... I, I've always wanted to queer storytelling with, with, with bigger archetypes. And we, we get so stuck in our simplistic human archetypes that I thought that maybe the, the way out of them is less to like try and, you know, academically fiddle with them, but just to compost them with like lichen and bacteria and invasive species. Yeah. Do you find also that that process of, you know, trying to understand or tell stories through an ecological lens also sort of helps with the limitation that our language often has? Yeah. And it also comes up against it too. I mean, mm. something I've been really interested in recently is I, I've always been interested in the difference between orality and chirographic cultures, culture, textual cultures, right. and how... In oral cultures, you have conceivably a much smaller vocabulary, but each one of those words is deeply rooted into an actual relationship and like actually constitutes like a real experience. Right. <laughs> and that when we enter into chirographic abstracted culture, suddenly we think that words don't have to have root systems. They don't have to actually show us real relationships. They can be totally abstract. And um, so I think that sometimes... I'm a wordy person and I love academia and I love research. So I sometimes feel that I betray <laughs> what I'm writing about with a certain kind of um, overexpressiveness and mm -hmm. abstraction. So that's a tension I'm working with. Um, yeah. Yeah. It reminds me of, uh, we just, I had a book club for my podcast for a while and we, one of the books we read last was Spell of the Century. I was just thinking, I'm actually talking to yeah. David later today. That's so funny. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was a magical book for me. Yeah. Um, yeah. Fascinating. Um, 
I also love to talk about your process with all of this. Um, I try when I teach astrology and also just as a practice in my own life to like cultivate mindfulness. Um, and I feel like in order to tell these stories, in order to pick up on stories through the environment, like how do you tune into that and how do you trust it? Or how do you trust yourself to kind of understand and metabolize whatever that insight is or whatever that narrative is or that synchronicity? Or I think a lot of it is about undoing the mindfulness. And I think mindfulness is, a, is a very much a product of the left brain, of this idea yeah. that we can understand the mind, we can control it, we can empty it, kenosis, you know, we can like make ourselves into the perfect vehicle of, of mindfulness. But I'm interested in kind of mindlessness of the right brain, that kind of gestalt, like holistic consciousness, which, mm. which where suddenly you're intuitively participating in the world rather than locating yourself inside of it as an individual. Mm. Yeah. And the thing I've been trying to feel into explaining is how do we listen with our whole bodies and how do we come into courtship with the world? And I think it's, it's less about trusting that intuition. It's more about saying like, we have been ignoring our lover for a long time. So coming back into the re relationship with them is not going to be this easy experience. It involves mm -hmm. playfulness and mischief and courting. And it involves question asking. Humans are very good at taking and extracting and not very good at asking questions. And I love that in myth and fairy tales, questions are often what solve problems. That, you know, in Wolfram van Eschenbach's Parseval, he only gets the grail when he knows how to turn to the wounded king and say, what ails thee, grandpa? Like, <laughs> um, and it's that moment when he steps out of his own story and his own monomaniacal dependency on the propulsion of his own narrative and asks for another story that he opens up the possibility of getting the grail. And so what I'm trying to encourage people to do is less to trust that they're getting the right answers, but more to trust that they're opening up a vein of communication whereby their questions loop them into relationship. Yeah, and also just being patient that the answer will likely not come when you expect it to yeah. or ever. Or, or yeah. it will come, and this is another thing, is it will come in your body. Like it will come as a rumble in your stomach, as like a, like a smell that you always get or always notice. It will come in, it's using your body as an instrument and not necessarily as like, a voice in like a using human language. Yeah. So speaking of bodies, um, I've also had a very long history as I know you have with illness and, um, I think spent, not, I think spent a lot of my life trying to like solve the problem and like supplement away the problem and tried every diet. And, um, and I think I read, something that you wrote recently about like high sensitivity, which I definitely absolutely have. And I, I find it really problematic actually that we even have that term like highly sensitive because to me it's like, isn't that human and natural? Um, but as far as like when you're saying you feel the answer in your body or receive it in your body, how can we participate in the sort of greater ecological, environmental narrative, listening for things 
Like it doesn't require our bodies necessarily be quote healthy. Oh um, no. And in fact, yeah. I think we live in a time where every ecology is disabled. So the people who may understand how to come into relationship with those ecologies best are the disabled, the, the neurodivergent, the people with PTSD and trauma, the highly yeah. sensitive. You know, our rivers know what it's like to not be able to reach the ocean, to not be able to accomplish the things that they're supposed to be able to accomplish. And um, I actually think that people who are forced outside of the cultural narrative of prog progress and wellness that defamiliarization helps them actually to see and empathize with other beings that are struggling right now. You know, for me very particularly, I, it took a long time to get a diagnosis, but the underlying root of all my issues is connective tissue disease. And it was this amazing moment where I was like, okay, this condition has no cure and no solid treatment plan, but I'm fascinated with fungi and loved them, and they are the connective tissue of the soil. And we don't include them in conservation efforts. We don't acknowledge that they're part of like one of the major kingdoms of the world and taught plants how to have root systems. Like maybe I can wed my healing to a more than human being. And it doesn't have to do with my particular healing. Um, I, yeah, I think that interestingly enough, it's people who don't fit, hmm, trying to think about how to, I don't think being well inside this culture is necessarily a determinant of your ability to survive in the times that are to come. <laughs> and I think, mm -hmm. in fact, the people who are disabled and unwell know how to deal with spontaneity, with breakdown, with decay, with rot, with pollution. We know how to improvise and to deal with discomfort. And it's to those people we need to look to ask for how to deal with with. Um, escalating chaos and unpredictability. Um, I want to ask, though, would you would you welcome me into your experience with this? Because I'm just always looking for companions in this process. Yeah. Um, well, I've I mean I've been whatever you would call. I'd have I've have some sort of sickness. Yeah, I know it's <laughs> problem God, of the body. What umbrella term? I mean, that's what I'm at this point. Yeah. I'm like, what diagnosis even works? Yeah, yeah. Um, since I was a baby, uh, a lot of it was digestive. Um, a lot of skin stuff, a lot of hormone stuff uh, that would sort of evolve over time, and it definitely was very tightly also wound in my like emotional and psychological state at the time. Um, so in retrospect, the times in my life where I was not in a relationship that served me or not living my life in a way that felt authentic and aligned, the symptoms were worse, which is not to say that they were not there when things were good, but there was definitely an undeniable correlation. And I think it just really came to a head in my 20s. I sort of changed my diet in my late teens and the, my problems kind of got a little better, but not totally better. And so I would just continue to restrict myself and work out harder and eat fewer foods. And like, um, and interestingly, when I decided to get divorced, I also simultaneously in retrospect, stupidly, I decided to go on like a parasite cleanse because this was my latest and greatest idea of what was wrong with me. And so 
and I feel like this has happened. I'm sure you've had this experience where like my body is physically going through a process that my psychology and my mental, emotional body is going through as well. So I was like purging my old self, purging the stories that didn't align. Um, but yeah, I got really, really sick and it was frustrating to me then because that whole idea of like, okay, but wait, I just got divorced. I'm living the life I'm supposed to be living or at least on the way. And in that moment, I got the most sick I had ever been. I had like acne. I I don't even, you can't even call it acne really. It was just like cystic welts all over my face. Um, Digestive system was totally messed up. I wasn't getting my period, just like hormonal nightmare. And I think I was, was at war in that time with my body in a way that I think I had always been but in a more subtle, quiet way. And at this point, it was just like anger and frustration, which over the course of two years, when I thought like, okay, like my face will, might never get better. Um, I might be like this forever. I, I at some point shifted from being at war to my body to being like at peace with it and then ultimately being grateful for that level of illness. Um, and it was in this period of time, I, I moved to a cabin in Topanga, California, and basically spent like two years in isolation because I was so mortified of going outside. Um, and it's when I found like a total spiritual practice in nature. And I was like, okay, well, I might not ever have friends or ever go outside, but as long as I can be in nature, I'll be okay. Um, and yeah, I think really like recognized in that moment too, that a lot of the way I was treating my body, the way I was disregarding my body for so long, um, was not appropriate for my level of sensitivity and my nervous system and the way that I need to interact with the world. So yeah, I mean, I look back now in my life and it's really interesting because like as a kid, I would like have a fit every time I had to have a transition, like from home to school or school to home. It's just everything was like overstimulation and I definitely need a lot of quiet time and peace and not being in cities. And so anyway, I feel like that was a very meandering answer. Uh, no, it's really but, helpful and also really yeah. intense. Um, yeah. Really intense, especially because I feel like I'm coming out of two years of isolation post breakup mm. from relationship right. and have also felt kind of like, can I ever be seen again by the world? So that, <laughs> thank you um, yeah. for the light on the other side. Um, yeah, there definitely is one. And I, I felt, I don't know, I, I'm curious to how spirituality has woven into all of this for you. Um, because I don't really, I didn't really ever consider myself a spiritual person. And I also take a lot of issue with like the way I think spirituality is defined and practiced by a lot of people. Yeah. In the, in the, um, so I'm, I am interested to hear how, how does like nature and ecology weave into threads of spirituality for you? Yeah, I think I think if I have any kind of practice, it's animism, but it's an animism that really rejects the homogenizing universalism of like appropriating indigenous cultures, pretending they were all the same. You know, I believe in an animism of chaotic difference that, you know, 
I'm serving the general aliveness, but that serving of the general aliveness doesn't necessarily mean that I'm going to be okay. Um, and um, that, you know, the world is, is created, the biosphere comes into being by um, antagonistic interactions that then become collaborations that then fall apart, that then meld again, tip into mutualism, tip into parasitism. And that it's that complexity, it's that topology of differences that creates the magic, that precipitates movement and evolution. And so, and as someone who's dealt with trauma and things that are hard to explain morally within a very simplistic religious dogma, I, I need this world where, you know, it's, it's multi-perspectival. It's, a, it's like, you know, from one species perspective, something is good. From another's, it's the end of the world. That's the apocalypse. Yeah. And so it's that, that multi-perspectival animism is what cushions my ability to not become existentially, like, defeated. Um, right. Which is like, okay, like, this has been really bad for me, and that's real, but it also, like, doesn't super matter, like, to the bees, like, and that I'm related to them, and I, it might be helpful to, like, pour myself into that, their experience. Um, I was lucky. My parents are scholars of religion and the history of religion. Mm-hmm. My dad is an ex-Buddhist monk, and he ran a Buddhist magazine for a long time. But he's also been hypercritical of cults and sexual abuse in um, hierarchical structures, and so... And really interested in, so he, by the time I came around, he had exited Zen and was becoming critical of it and trying to add a ecological lens to it Mm. um, and to spirituality in general. And my mom is really interested in the history, the underlying pagan roots of Catholicism and how Catholicism syncretically um, adapts to the paganism of Europe. So I had parents who gave me critical tools for analyzing what's wrong with these things, but also a deep sensitivity for why it might be important to believe in the sacredness of the world. Um, Yeah, and I think that the main, the simplest answer is I was raised around animals. And in a way that my parents weren't telling me what these animals were doing and what their purposes were, they were telling me, and there was a lot of mutual magic. And I I think I believe in magic more than I believe in spirituality. And magic is being a way of being borrowed, like a way of like falling into the ecological flow of where you're supposed to be. Like a bee goes to the flower and pollinates it, but it doesn't think it's pollinating it. It thinks it's following its appetite for sweetness. And so I think magic is this way of following the sweetness yeah, so I'd say I, I think magic and spirituality are interchangeable, and oftentimes religious structures call another culture's religious structure magic to make it other. But I do like right. the word magic more than I like spirituality. Yeah, that's interesting. And do you think there's a level, I mean, in talking about especially like going through, you know, dark nights of the soul yeah. or something like that and having these periods of isolation and wondering if there's a light at the end of the tunnel and like thinking about how we're going to re-enter, like, do you deal in or think about like concepts of faith and, and if so, where and how (laughs) does that inspiration come from? This is something I'm in currently. Like this, Mm. this is my riskiest, messiest answer. I, when I first got ill, I 
definitely look to underworld stories and to narratives of dissent and ascent for help. Like, this is an initiation. If I understand it and game it, I can come out better. But then when you have, like, the 12th version of that, you're like... (laughs) And then when you see your friends die, when you see friends get sick, if friends get killed or or commit suicide, like, you're like, oh, most people don't survive the initiation. Like, is it initiation? Who's midwifing me through this? Who are the Mm -hmm. elders? Um, And I think for me, faith has become... I'm not saying it's a bad word, but I feel like it's used by a lot of like spiritual materialists to like be like, you just need to have faith. Like, look on the bright side of things. Like, high vibration, man. Move up your vibration. And I think for me, as a survivor of extraordinary violence when I was a child, faith is molecular. Like, the fact that I'm still alive is faith. Like, I don't have intellectual faith or spiritual faith. I have like bodily faith. Like, the fact that I'm alive must be faith. And that's what I've been thinking about more and more is like the fact that certain people are still standing up is faith. It has nothing. They could be so existentially defeated and absolutely bereft of any kind of spiritual belief. But the fact that they're still alive is faith. Mm. Yeah. I love that. How does spirituality and faith land with you right now? Like in this moment? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I, I sometimes feel like I'm like it's an uphill battle a little bit to try to conceptualize for myself, but especially try to explain what spirituality or faith (laughs) means to me, because I often find that it's like diametrically opposed to what the mainstream conventional understanding of that is. And as someone that I mean, I'm I'm very interested in astrology and studied it. I've studied it for many years, but for me, it, it was always mostly about the mythology and the sort of like archetypal aspect of it and how we are engaged in these stories that also inspired um, these archetypes of these planets and these signs. But it's like so difficult to try to explain like, oh no, I'm not like those astrologers or like my spirituality isn't like that. Um And I, and also love to talk to you about this, but like the realm of psychedelic use and the way that it's becoming commercialized and... I just did a panel about this, yeah, (laughs) where we we were talking about how problematic it is, yeah. Yeah. Um, So yeah, I, I find myself constant, I mean, honestly, like a bit frustrated and I feel like I keep trying to like find a community or like find a space where other people understand what I'm talking about or feel the things that I think or value the things that I value. And I feel like I constantly come up against opposition, um, in a myriad of ways. And so that's, it's frustrating, but yeah, I don't know. I think my faith and my, my faith and hope I was going to say is, very much just connected to the feeling of belonging that I feel with nature and that like I'm a part of something really beautiful um, that I will never completely understand, like even a little bit, right? Uh, And the mystery of that really lights me up. I like the questions and the unknowns. so yeah, I'm I'm curious to hear what you think about the whole psychedelic thing, right? And you'd think if we were like 
taking these plants or engaging with them, digesting them, that we would all understand them <laughs> or <laughs> understand how to work with them. And I, I don't know, maybe the question is more like, is it possible to take these practices and these like shamanistic practices, for example, and put them into the context of like Western capitalist yeah, society? Absolutely. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's what, you know, early, I love fungi and I have PTSD and trauma. And so early on I was like microdosing and, and, and doing psilocybin and being like, Oh, this is beneficial and very pro that. And then very quickly I was like, this is really problematic. <laughs> um, and I think what it really relates to, and this is what I was talking about in this panel I did on, on I was saying, like, how can we recontextualize psilocybin fungi? Because that's where I'm specifically oriented, into a relational ontology, which is like we're in such a simplistic conceptual place inside extractive capitalism. It's like veganism is very tied for example it's always my example it's very tied to extractive capitalism which is it's like you can create a morally stable system where some foods are good and some are bad and you're not actually looking at the web of kin and relationships that constitute like your avocado probably causes as much bloodshed as like the piece of meat and it's important to instead of an object ontology reorient towards a relational ontology so it's not about making the right decision it's about understanding your complicity in, in webs of relationship where suffering happens. You know, Bio Kamalafe talks about webs of suffering. Like, we're all participating in them, but some of them are so abstracted from us, and we're so asleep to them, that we can pretend like we're morally pure. And I think with, with psychedelics, they are deeply, like, my favorite example is that psilocybin grows on cow shit, and cows used to be, during the Bronze Age, for most of human history, sacred animals. And, you know, bull gods, lunar time, they're, you know, you're into the archetypal realm, so you know yeah. this. And then when you see the switch into dominator cultures, you see suddenly that we um, create horticulture and animal husbandry. And suddenly um, cows are denigrated and the lunar kings and these bull gods um, are turned into monsters like um, Asturian the bull. And Theseus, the story of Theseus. Yeah. And um, it's really interesting to me that in America, specifically where I am, that cows were used to colonize America. They actually, they were used to ecocidally terraform and destroy landscapes, push indigenous populations out of places. And then they're also the most abused creatures in America that we like we we harm them and that their that, that harm actually perpetuates and creates the chemical chemical reality of global warming and then you're taking psilocybin which is relationally has its fucking root system in cow shit and you think you're not participating in this complex relational ontology with cows mm. and cows as, as as a tool of of colonialism and ecocide and genocide, and also cows as denigrated and abused by extractive capitalism. And so I, I, I strongly believe that if you're taking psilocybin for your own personal, psychological, individual well-being and not, <laughs> you know, you have to yeah. let my friend Simon on this panel was saying, like, people think you're having this psilocybin experience for your own mental health but you have to let yourself be borrowed. This is not about you. This is about a web of kin that you're entering into. And 
The same goes for ayahuasca and all of these, these substances, which is we've become so deracinated from the fact that we are relational beings, that we think that we can uproot this thing, treat it like an object, extract it, take it, and then not let that medicine move us into being medicine. Like I, the, the, the problem for me, I think, I'm ranting. Um, Go for it. I'm enjoying every moment. <laughs> we're so focused on taking medicine that we don't let that medicine move us into being medicine. Like, you, you, it's not about your individual experience. It's like, how can this, like, tie you back into a culpable relationship with a web of more than human kin? Yeah. Right. Totally. Yeah, I just recorded a, a podcast with Chris Ryan about this. And we, we were, like, for me, when I've taken psychedelic, which has been very minimally, um just because it wasn't ever really something that interested me. And I also had a feeling that I lived in a relatively psychedelic way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, true. Yeah. <laughs> um, which once I've taken psychedelics, I'm like, oh yeah, okay. No, I get this. I understand these worlds. Like I, it's not as pronounced or severe or intense, but, but I, I walk through these realms a lot. Um, and I think that's the problem is that we think, like you said, we're using them like they're, quote, tools and to try to get something from them and that they hold the answers. Whereas for me, I see it just as like a window into understanding that like this magic and this sort of way of psychedelically interacting with the world is all around us all the time and that they should be reminders of that. Yeah. Um, and that we don't need them necessarily. That's what I talk about a lot, which is just sensory gating. That we yeah. are receiving so much sensory stimuli all the time that to let it in would be a profoundly destructive psychedelic experience. Right. Um, but learning how to open and close those doors with a little bit more precision without psychedelics is probably much more sustainable. Um and, you know, gosh, just going to sit in a place every single day for 365 days is the most psychedelic thing you can do. Yeah. Yeah, oh, I agree. I'm also curious if you think about, like, one way that I feel like I sort of come up against all these walls when it relates to conventional modern-day, quote, spirituality, is that for me, if, like, my spirituality or my spiritual practices aren't grounding me and, like, reconnecting me, then I don't really know what they are. And I feel like there's this, the and especially these terms of like transcendence and like ascension and like 5D, where it's like, I was listening to uh, Stephen Jenkinson recently, actually, and he he said that we've sort of taken on these like beam me up Scotty Oh my gosh, Which yeah. I thought was such a good way of putting it. Yeah, I mean, I'm really interested in the history of modern religion. And what I see is that you have the Bronze Age collapse and you have mass dislocations of people and you have climatological pressures, you have genocide, you have social conflict. And what you see coming out of those moments is platonic philosophy and mind and matter as a split. And for me, it's symptomatic of a cultural body experiencing trauma, which is when you are, are traumatized, you often dissociate to survive. So the culture dissociates from this physical experience of repeated generational trauma. But unfortunately, that disassociation gets articulated as theology and, and culture 
that then gets passed down again and again and again. And so I'm really, I really think that ascension narratives, like I have compassion for how they arise as someone who disassociated and has had that experience as a way of coping with trauma. I'm compassionate about it, but it needs to be tied back into a cycle. Like I think also like a lot of people are like ascent is bad, descent is good. And that also just rearticulates the binaristic thinking, which is I'm much more interested in like, for me, I think use spores as the example, which is so they're underground fungal systems, mycelial systems that connect orchids and plants and trees and constitute soil. And then they felt together and fruit above ground as mushrooms that look like individuals, but they're really just reproductive flourishes of these below ground relational systems. Mm. But then they sporulate to reproduce. And there are 50 million tons of spores in the air right now. Like, it's more than any other kind of biomass in the air are spores. They, like, travel. There's this whole idea that they travel, like, from continent to continent. Like, they're carried so high up. But what they also do is they, um, we're finding more and more, is they act as nuclei for water molecules and they create weather systems. That, in Mm. fact, rainforests part of the way that their climate is produced is by way of spores sporulating storm clouds and rain. And so for me, spores show us this really great way of being like, sometimes you're ascending, sometimes you're going up, and you are supposed to have this experience of headiness and of ascent and of learning something, of completion and clarity and sunlight. But then you're going to descend so that you can continue this virtuous cycle. Sometimes you're about to, you, you should decay sink back into the roots. Sometimes you should follow the spore upwards. Yeah, I love that. It just reminds me too, I just rewatched The Secret Garden for the first time since I was a child. Oh Oh my God. (laughs) Which is always an interesting thing to do to like watch movies from your childhood that you know were really impactful, but you don't really know why or how. (laughs) And then like now in in my adult life, I'm like, oh, that makes a total sense. I haven't rewatched that one. So now I feel like I have to do that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, there's a, a moment in it, like the the young boy that lives in this manor, um, and he's like trapped in his room, and he was sort of told when he was a young boy, like that he was really sick, and he was going to die, and he was premature, so he was really weak, and they like boarded up all his windows, and... And basically he became an embodied sickness because of the ways that he was raised. And there's this one moment where like... <laughs> Um, the main character, now I'm forgetting her name, but she's, you know, like this sort of like headstrong little girl. And she's like, this is ridiculous. Like, you're not, you're not sick. We're going to figure this out. We're going to open these windows. And he says, no, but if I, if we open the windows and take the boards off, like I'm not supposed to get the spores into my lungs. Um, So there's this whole narrative around like the spores and finally him actually breathing in the spores and like reconnecting with nature in the world. So anyway definitely recommend rewatching. Oh, I love that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's part of our whole antibiotic culture and like not just antibiotic Mm. in terms of medical industrial complex. Like we believe that like the way you figure things out is by managing them, sterilizing, cleaning them, organizing them. But the truth is that like that approach doesn't really actually create resilient ecosystems inside our own bodies or in our culture. Yeah. So how do you, I know and I'm also so into this, like reimagining or retelling the story of Jesus specifically, but of a lot of these like stories that exist in our sort of modern day religious religiosity. Um, like as far as 
sort of retelling existing stories versus telling new stories. Like I'm curious about your interest in sort of looking at these or at least versions of stories that exist um, so in such a sort of mainstream way um, and and how you think that sort of going back and reevaluating them or reimagining them or redreaming them is helpful in moving forward into the future, you know, with new stories, if that makes sense as a question. <laughs> Thank you, yeah. Well, first I'll just say that we are carbon that's been around since the Big Bang, that on a very biological level, we're constantly remixing ourselves, that, you know, and that the same is true for storytelling. And the idea of novelty is, is a little simplistic, which is that you're always yeah. remixing things. Yeah, it, maybe it looks different, but it has a lot of the same material. And one of my favorite experimental theologians, Mary Jane Rubenstein, says, it doesn't help to say God is dead when he's still operating. And I think a really great way of understanding that is that the theological binary of mind and um, spirit and matter gets rearticulated as Cartesian dualism. And that, in fact, people don't understand modern science is incredibly Christian (laughs) in the way that it articulates and reduces everything and analyzes it. But it won't admit it, and so it's even more irremediable and complicated. Mm. So for me, what seems important about a lot of these myths that are driving progress and domination is looking at how they have been deracinated from their original ecologies and misinterpreted by patriarchy and then used to create violence. And that if we can reroute them in their original system, we can understand what they were really doing, and then we can understand how we can move forward and compost them. So I always say reroute, rewild, retell. That mm. there's no way, you know, in oral culture, stories are constantly adapting. They're always in progress. I was just reading this, rereading one of my favorite books called The Lost Art of Scripture by Karen Armstrong, which mm-hmm. is like scripture is embodied. It involves hand gestures. It's situational. It's relational. If it's not changing, it, it's not working. It's breaking apart. And I think that we have this idea that myths and, and these dominant narratives are just going to be the same for 2,000 years. And you can take a, you know, you can take the story of a Galilean storyteller and uproot it, translate it into the language of the people who'd murdered him, and then transplant it all across the world, and it will still work. And, you know, it's not... If you look at ecology, which is always what I do, which is like, you cannot uproot a plant and then transplant it to a different environment and expect it to thrive. And, in fact, sometimes it's not even that it doesn't thrive. It creates dysbiosis. It creates problems. Um... So I, I want to look in the, you know, the underworld and see what, what's percolating down there. Like, are there healthier modes that we've forgotten, healthier aspects of these stories? And also, are there ways that we can understand how these narratives have become invisible puppeteers of us? Yeah, like, I, I, I'm very interested how Christianity is an invisible, invisible puppeteer of modern scientism. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's super fascinating. And I think I wonder if also this way of looking at stories, you know, like I, I definitely grew up and I think it's quite common to sort of look at religion and think like it's bad and to demonize it. And 
it was so helpful and comforting to me to recognize it's not like the Bible necessarily or the stories necessarily that are bad. It's the way the stories are told and the people that are telling the stories and what the the motives are intentional or not um, and how sort of beautiful it can be to, you know, not just reimagine these stories that exist outside of us, but then also recognize how we are participants in, participants in them. Um, and so that if we tell the story differently, how are we sort of like, moving the story along in a different way moving the lips yeah I always think of that you're just like like trying to like you know massage the story so that the lymph moves and maybe there's a little bit more health in the immune system and I also yeah I mean all written stories are elite stories like literacy at the rate that we have now is like it's happened for a blink of an eye so it used to be that the story the stories that we think of as being the dominant narratives were never, they were always just the stories that the elites who had education and access to writing chose to enshrine. Like, so the old Testament is in a lot of ways is this is an elite political bias about a story of a people who were doing a lot of different things. Can you, um, if you can expand a bit, I know you have a book coming out next year. Um, about masculinity, or at least that engages <laughs> the concept of masculinity. Oh man! Um, and I, I was this was like I was so relieved to find your work, but then to hear that you were writing a book that had this topic, I thought was so wonderful, actually. Um, and I'm I'm curious, kind of how that came about, and how you feel about <laughs> masculinity and patriarchy, and this whole idea of like the future is female and the extent to which we have the ability and the capacity to retell the story of masculinity and that it's maybe not bad, but just sometimes off on a track that <laughs> has gotten lost or something. Definitely. The, the one thing I'll say is I didn't choose this. Like, this is not what I ordered off the menu. Like the story <laughs> of how this project came into being is so weird. Like I mean, I have two books coming out next year, and the book that's coming out after the masculinity one is the one I spent like five years writing, which is this eco-feminist retelling of the Gospels from Mary Magdalene's perspective, and it's fiction, and it's feminist, and it's... um, And then that book didn't sell, and quarantine happened, and I was super sick and despondent, and I started... Do posting these experimental essays about myths of the masculine online... And suddenly I'd written a book in three weeks and it was bought. Like, so, so it's also, there's, there's, there's an element of just being like, what happened? Like, I didn't order this. Um, Like, and it also was so controversial that I don't know if I would have like necessarily chosen to do this. Like, gosh, the masculinity is such a triggering quote unquote subject. But what I really feel deeply is that the problem, these conversations about masculinity get really simplistic and unhelpful because they conflate patriarchy with masculinity. But they're not the same thing. Patriarchy is one very bad masculine story that I use the idea of narrative dysbiosis, which is when you take too many antibiotics, it doesn't just kill off the bad stuff in your gut. It kills off everything. And then when there's too much real estate open, a monologuing pathogen can take over. And normally that pathogen is kept at bay by a lot of other healthy microbes. And the answer to this issue of narrative dysbiosis is not to take another antibiotic, but to take a probiotic. 
to take a lot of different microbes to help manage this nar- this narrative pathogen. So I think of toxic masculinity and patriarchy as being like candida in your gut, like yeast. And mm-hmm. trying to kill it off is only going to exacerbate the problem. What I'm trying to do is add a biodiversity of other stories to keep it in check. And I think that a lot of men are drawn to figures I find really problematic, not because they're dumb or ill-informed. They just haven't been given many options. Um, and, and that was a way, like, I was very angry for a long time at men because I, I saw that a lot of violence had been done to me at the hands of men. And then I was like, this isn't changing the story at all. I have to look at this in a different way, a probiotic way. And I, I think that what has seemed very juicy and sexy and fun is that pretty recently, in terms of the grand scheme of human hominid history, there were a lot of different masculine archetypes. You know, we have vegetal gods, we have fermentation gods, we have... Um, trans gods, like visibly, you know, yeah. people don't understand that Aphrodite like had a dick and breasts, mostly in their interpretation, like very mutable. You know, Aphrodite yeah. could be called like an early masculine archetype, um, and I think that this book is my attempt to look at all of these forgotten, suppressed archetypes and saying like, okay, it's not about destroying the hero and the king and the warrior, but it's about offering more and seeing that if we offer more, people might make better decisions about the kind of masculinity they're enacting in their life. Hmm. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, and also the fact that I think masculinity is of course a part of the greater ecology. And so the more we try to alienate it or push it away or call it toxic, I mean, first of all, we're projecting shadow in a way that's unhealthy, but I feel like we're also obviously doing this on a personal level. Like what is it that we're expelling from our own, you know, our own soul and our own story and identity when we're not integrating the healthy forms of masculinity, which of course there are many. Yeah. And, and I also think it's another way of trying to always locate yourself on the side of moral purity. Like rather than saying like, I, I, I'm so much more interested in implicating anthropocentrism than I am in masculinity. Like human centrism is destroying this earth paired with extractive capitalism and saying that it's just masculinity somehow pretend I I can pretend that I'm removed from the hyper object of extractive capitalism. Um, yeah. 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 That makes sense. I'm curious too, like how you conceptualize and understand home and belonging. Um, (laughs) um, I think it's something we all struggle with quite a bit. Um, but I wonder if for you and your sort of connection to nature and ecology, if you've been able to understand that or actually feel like you belong to something, um, that, you know, has, has existed for so much time and isn't necessarily co-opted or, um, has a, an ancient story within it, I guess, that you can locate and feel into. I mean, I have two different sides of the coin. One is that I think the best 
we're so focused on guru culture and teachers and outsourcing our intuition. And the truth is that I'm not super interested in human mentorship anymore. I'm much more interested in being like, you live in a specific place for a specific reason, be it a city, be it um, a strip mall, be, be, be it, no matter what it looks like, it called you here like an acupuncture point and it wants you and it needs your medicinal footsteps. And I think there's this sense of like, yes, I'm here for a reason to get to know like the dandelions coming up through the concrete, the smell of the waste plant, like the moral complexity of this place has called me here. And, and that the greatest teachings you can receive will happen within a five-mile radius of your house through a slow, careful attention. Like just go on a walk every day and pay attention to what you notice. And I oftentimes like to offer like what you love loves you back. What you notice is noticing you back. That there's like there's a reciprocity there, you know. But I'm disabled. And I go in and out of being able to like access this kind of enchanted ecological preciousness of like going and being in my environment. Sometimes I like really can't leave my house or can't move. And so I think the other side of the coin for me is something I've been thinking about, which is like disabled ecologies and the self is disabled ecology, which is Mm -hmm. sometimes if you can't move and you can't walk, you can think about the ancient eukaryotes that melded to make the complex nucleated cells that make your body you know the viral incursion that taught human beings how to develop the syntrophoblast layer of the uterus you know a viral incursion creates placental births mm-hmm. and and i can look i can think about the microbes in my gut the you know millions of bacterial cells that populate me and think me by some kind of quorum sensing and so I also belong to the ecosystem of my own body and to my body as ancestor. My body as ecosystem of ancestors that are bacterial and viral and fungal. And I think it, it's, it's that pooling within my own corporeal complexity that, that has been recently helpful. Hmm. Yeah, I love that you brought this up. Um, I feel like I'm struggling a bit at this time in my life where I think I feel like, I mean, I'm sure so many of us do, but this sense of kind of like inadequacy or like needing, um, to like seeking legitimacy or approval. Right. And I mean, I definitely have like studied and I'm fascinated by guru culture and see all of the problems and yet still find myself like so desiring of teachers and of mentors and leadership. No, like just yesterday I was like, gosh, like where's the trauma therapist who's actually equipped for me? Like, you know, I'm always looking. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's frustrating because I think especially in the past six months or so, I, I feel like I've had these experiences that have been sort of like throwing me back on myself um, and being like, maybe that isn't actually the best route. Not that you shouldn't have teachers or, or mentors or learn from anyone, but how might you be disregarding the knowledge you have um, or the knowledge that you can absorb through tuning into, you know, nature in your body, which, I mean, which has been so miraculous and um, really fulfilling. Um, and I just wonder, I don't know, like as young women in the world, if we are just consistently like... Uh, questioning our own 
ability in that respect. I think so. Um, And I mean, gosh, I will not name names, but yesterday I had one of those experiences where there's like a male hero of yours who you've learned so much from, and then you actually interact with them. And it's like so bad that you're like, what? Like, does this? And I I think one of the the complex experiences I'm having is, okay, I'm not going to throw out my experience with your work. Your work was really meaningful to me, but I'm going to see that my interpretation of your work is better than your impetus behind it perhaps or your moral character um and I think that that women in particular have this experience of having heroes that then betray them again and again what does that mean I mean gosh the past year like it's so interesting like this work about the masculine has both like showed me like men who stepped up who are just like the most amazing interesting people and I'm just like yes there you are. And then it's also I've seen behind the curtain with some of my biggest heroes who you would never believe they would be this terrible. And you then you like come up against their behavior and you're like, what is happening? Yeah, 100%. That's exactly what my experience yeah. has been. And it's, it's incredibly, I mean, it happened like uh, several times in the course of a very short period of time. And I was like, okay, come on. Like what is happening right now? Um, but yeah, very interesting too, around also like, I like idolizing and like idolatry in general versus just learning, just learning. Yeah. And that's, that's the thing is like, I don't have to throw your work out. I learn from everybody, but I'm not going to like enshrine you. Yeah. 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 I don't know if you've read, um, inner gold by Robert a Johnson, but he speaks about like how we obviously don't just project negative qualities that we're not ready to embody, but also the positive positive, qualities, right? Um, And so he calls like inner gold, basically like our own inner God, and that it's totally normal for us to project our gold onto someone else and have them hold our gold for a while until we are ready to embody it. But when we um, mix the relating if we know we have someone holding our god but then also we decide we want to sleep with them or be their best friend or like we can't mix levels like that um so it was interesting too around these people that i can see myself thinking are sort of godly or idols that maybe i should like leave them at a distance you know and not try to like get closer or um which seems counterintuitive in a way but i think is an interesting way to think about it um it's super, so, yeah. it, it's super interesting. Um, I was a tarot reader for a long time. I still am, but yeah. like I used to do it professionally, no more. Yeah. <laughs> and I was really interested in the lover's card and how for me the lover's card is about the mirror image. It's about the being, the landscape that you project your own qualities of lovableness onto. And like mm-hmm. oftentimes the people like Lindsay Mack, who's, do you know Lindsay Mack? I don't, it sounds familiar. Amazing tarot sure. teacher. But Lindsay Mack always says that, like, when you become super obsessed with someone, it's often because they're reflecting back to you something about yourself. And the obsession is actually a key to, like, tap into that, like, inner gold, inner God. Like, what, what am I projecting onto this person that I need to know about myself? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. All right. I feel like I could probably talk to you for hours more, so maybe (laughs) we'll have to do it again sometime. Um, But as we wrap up, I would love if you could tell everyone where they can find you and learn more about your work. And then I'm going to ask you a relatively annoying question, which is I always ask people who are on the show to recommend like one or two books that were really 
um, profound and meaningful in some way. And I know it's difficult for those of us who like read a lot <laughs> to choose. Um, but we, these are the books that we often read as our, as a part of our book club. So there's like a cyclical, awesome element to it. Okay. So <laughs> you can find me on Instagram at cosmogony, C-O-S-M-O-G-Y-N-Y. And I try and offer, I'm a starving artist. So like I have a paid sub stack where I offer really juicy stuff, which is sophiestrand.substack.com. But I also offer a lot for free on my Instagram. Like I just try and like be in relationship with the people who are reading me in a way that's not always about paying me money. Um, And I have books coming out. The Flowering Wand is available for pre-order. And I'm currently, I don't know when this will come out, but currently teaching a course with Edvaya about myth and mycelium. And um, you can hop on board with that if you'd like. Um, But as for my books that I recommend. Um, I really, really love the book. Um, it came out last year. It's like a blend between fiction and nonfiction. I think it's one of the best books I've read recently, hmm. which is called When We Cease to Understand the World by Benjamin Labatut. It's very hmm. short. It's perfect. It's brilliant. Um, awesome. I wish, wish more people would read it. And I also want to recommend the book Inflamed by Rupa Maria and Raj Patel, which is an incredible problematizing of the idea of health as being an individual phenomena and talking about health as being about webs of relationship and um, intertangled experiences of oppression. And I I felt like that book was really helpful in understanding Mm -hmm. how I'm a place where a lot of complexity sediments, I'm not personally responsible for how bad I feel. Um, Yeah, so those two books. Thank you so much, Sophie. This was so enjoyable. This was, yeah, no. We could probably do this for another three hours. Thank you. We'll have to do it again sometime for sure. Yeah. Hello again, everybody. Thank you for listening to that conversation with Sophie. I highly recommend checking out her work and signing up for her course, which I really wanted to sign up for, but it's like super late in the night for me uh, because I'm going to be in Georgia Uh, the country, not the state, uh, in July and then in Europe in August. And I'm not so good at taking part in courses where I can't actually show up in real time. So please take the course for me. Tell me how it goes. uh, And please uh, support Sophie and check out her work. I'm um, pretty certain that you will find it as inspiring and meaningful and important as I do. Again, if you would like to support this project, this project being the podcast, but also the writing that I do on Substack, um, and as I mentioned, I will be bringing back the book club and we'll be doing more workshops. I've just been in a little bit of a period of hibernation, um, which we'll probably talk a little bit more about at some point, but I've been in a little bit of a period of hibernation, but feel as if I'm emerging out of it. So I'm looking forward to restarting a lot of these community practices that we were doing before when the podcast was on Patreon. But now that it's on Substack, I'm honestly much happier with it. Um, We have about 800 subscribers on Substack compared to the 100 that we had on Patreon. My income decreased by 90% making the switch because I made everything free. But the subscribers went up eight times. Um, And to me, I think that's a win. I think the more people, the better. And I appreciate, uh, you know, the, the myriad of ways that people could participate in this community whether it's financial or not. However, if you do find this content valuable and you do have the means to subscribe, it's five bucks a month 
which is ultimately pretty cheap. And you're not only supporting me, but also helping to subsidize those to get this content who can't afford it. So Anya Kotz, A-N-Y-A-K-A-A-T-S dot substack dot com is where you will find all of that. Um, And also you can comment on all of my posts and all of the episodes, which is really cool and a feature that we couldn't do before. Um, So if you like an episode, if you didn't like an episode, if you had some thoughts on an episode, if you want to share something about an episode, now you can comment on it through Substack. Whereas before it just like existed on an app, which it still does. But if you um, find the post on Substack, you can actually engage, which is really cool. I love to hear what you guys think. I'm going to play you out today with a song called The Dust by Ryan, and I'm not going to say his last name correctly. I think it's French, so it would be Mont Bleu, (laughs) Um, but I don't know if that's how he pronounces it or not. So uh, the song is called The Dust. As always, you can find all of the songs that I play on this podcast on Spotify. I have a playlist among many other playlists, but this one's called A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World, obviously. Uh, So you can find that song, you can find the information about the songs and the episode and all the links to the guests and all that good stuff in the show notes. So enjoy the song. Uh, Thank you for being here with me. Even though you're not technically here, you are here energetically. I feel you in the air (laughs) and I hope to engage with with more of you soon in person and via the interwebs. Sending my love to all of you. Bye. Let's say you arrived Every time you fought in your life And every time your blood ran cold You were being smiled upon By the moonbeams and the starlight The dust that went and made up you And the moon dust you'll go back to Let's say you were wrong To think that you were ever on your own And every time you could not tell You were just being told To smell the roses Feel the forces That were sending out their sweet message still Saying I love you And I always will When the war is done and the car don't come And everyone has moved on Under a blackened sun When you feel far from having someone you can't hold Just know that you are not alone And that's all you get to know now Let's say you were mine Traveling through space and time And let's say that I wasn't yours And we were being smiled upon By the moonbeams and the starlight The dust that went and made up me and you And the moon dust will go back to you